0: to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. What is the nature of justice? What is just and unjust is probably one of the oldest questions, maybe the oldest question in political philosophy. More specifically, is it possible to think about, to theorize about what justice is, before one encounters the messy realities of the world, the obvious injustices of the world, the compromises that it is necessary to make in order to achieve justice in the real world, can we fix our sights on an ideal of justice prior to any of that? My guest today, I'm very fortunate to be joined by a really terrific thinker. I'm always humbled by the guests that I'm able to get on this show. My guest today is Professor Jacob T. Levy, who is working on an upcoming book titled Justice in Babylon, which aims to take on exactly this question. He'll be arguing against an ideal theory of political justice, and in its place, offering us a framework for thinking about what justice is in a, as a Christian might say, in a fallen world, in a fallen state of mankind. So as an introduction, Jacob T. Levy is the Tomlinson Professor of Political Theory, Professor of Political Science, and Associated Faculty in the Department of Philosophy at McGill University. He is the Coordinator of McGill's Research Group on Constitutional Studies, the Founding Director of McGill's Yan P. Lin Center for the Study of Freedom and Global Orders in Ancient and Modern Worlds, and the Political Theory Field Editor for the Journal of Politics. His areas of research include liberal and constitutional theory, Federalism and Local Self-Government, Multiculturalism and Nationalism, Freedom of Association and the History of Political Thought, and especially the 18th Century and Montesquieu. He's the author of The Multiculturalism of Fear and Rationalism, Pluralism and Freedom. He is the editor and co-editor of Colonialism and Its Legacies, Federalism and Subsidiary, and the forthcoming Oxford Handbook of Classics in Contemporary Political Theory. He's on the editorial boards of the Journal of Politics, Political Research Quarterly, Political Studies, and Publius, the Journal of Federalism. Professor Levy has also written extensively on contemporary questions, and his articles have been published in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune, Vox, Foreign Policy, Salon, The Australian, Slate, The Chronicle of Higher Education, Reason, The Boston Review, and The New Republic Online. So as is quite common on this show, this is going to be a two-part series, with the first focusing directly in on Professor Levy's upcoming work, and the second being a more free-form discussion Of the some of these principles and just some stuff that I've been interested in, and I wanted to ask Professor Levy about. So, just two super quick notes before we get started. The first is we had a really long and a really great conversation, and the order I'm presenting the material to you here is a very slightly different order than the one that we recorded it in. So, I went with what seemed to thematically make sense, doing first. Professor Levy's current research project, and secondly, free-form discussion. I don't think honestly that you'll even really notice it, but just as a heads up, there might be one point where we reference back to something that will actually be coming up in the next episode. But this just seemed to make much more sense structurally. The second point is, as you'll hear, I sometimes take on topics with which I'm personally really familiar, like I did in my ideology episode, and I sometimes get really great, really qualified guests who are experts in stuff that I'm just not. So as you'll hear in the first part, a lot of the debates around ideal and non-ideal theory are really, I, you know, I always try to be honest about what I don't know in this podcast. So in the first part of this series, you'll hear me asking some questions that are just genuine questions of me just trying to get it where all the pieces fit straight in my own head. So I hope that will be useful (laughs) for the audience as well. And then in the second part, we get on to some stuff to do with some of the debates that we've been having on the american left about liberal versus radical theories of change about whether we view voting in a symbolic or a functional way which are debates that you know i've been having for years and years now so we get into a bit more you know the first part is more of a traditional interview which is great and then the second part is more of a sort of uh back and forth so just as a sort of uh editorial that's what's coming up but i think both parts are really valuable and i certainly learned a lot from this conversation, and it helped me um, get a lot of the moving parts straight in my own head. So I hope you find it as fascinating and as valuable as I did. So without any further digressions in my introduction, let's get straight to it. It is my absolute pleasure to present Professor Jacob T. Levy. joined today by Jacob T. Levy. Jacob, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. I appreciate that. Um,
0: So I'll have already introduced you at this point, but um, do you want to just briefly say like, what sorts of issues that you work on and um, uh, what what interests you in your research?
1: Sure. Uh, My first book was on Multiculturalism and the Rights of Ethnic Minorities. My second book, Rationalism, Pluralism, and Freedom, was more broadly on intermediate groups in liberal political theory and the history of liberal thought and in uh, contemporary liberal societies. And along the way of those two projects, I've had side projects on federalism, on the rights of indigenous peoples, and on history of political thought, including some fairly sustained work on both Montesquieu and the 18th century, including the American founding. The work that I'm embarked on now that we're going to talk about more today is work on how we think about political norms and normativity under the assumption that the political world is a deeply flawed and imperfect place. This includes concerns with uh, the normality of being alienated from politics, and uh, it includes critiques of social contract theory, both historically and today, that build into our ideas about politics a strong orientation toward universal agreement, toward consensus, toward belief in the state as a machine for the production of justice. That's an idea that I started to reach in rationalism, pluralism, and freedom, uh, both in the history of political thought. Part of that book and in the analysis of why we should have robust defenses of associational freedom and minority rights. Uh, But it's now turning more and more into the center of my research.
0: So your starting by rejecting certain forms of what we might call ideal theory and then setting up an alternate way of thinking about political normativity in its space.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: Okay. So can we start with ideal theory, but then I have some more just vague meandering questions about um, alienation from politics, consensus stuff like that. Um but can we start can we start with the nitty-gritty and work out does that make sense? Sure. Okay, so let's do ideal theory. Um could you I mean do you want to start here and just give us like a, a short definition as to what a political theorist might mean when they use that phrase or a political philosopher, I guess in this case.
1: So, ideal theory has been turned into a kind of technical term of art by John Rawls and his methodological followers. And it tends to mean three things more or less all at the same time. One of them is that in thinking about a normative question, we want to get the answer right before we start to worry about what compromises with the flawed world would and what getting it right means includes in part what's called the assumption of full compliance. We don't want to build into our principles the problem that people are going to cheat or break the principles. We don't want to let them bias our moral considerations by blackmailing us and saying, well, if you set the standard too high, I'm simply not going to do it. That, says the ideal theorist, doesn't count as any kind of a reason at all at the stage of working out what the right thing to do is. Maybe later on, as you're working out compromises, you have to compromise with the fact that there are people who are going to cheat or there are bad people. Uh, but at least in the first instance, you want to identify what's right, right? by thinking about a world in which everyone would do whatever the right thing is. A second consideration that people mean is that our norms ought to be willing to be ambitious. Now, there's good reason for not thinking those are just the same thing, but one of the arguments for full compliance as an assumption is that if you don't have full compliance as an assumption, your normative aspirations will tend to be too low because you'll only be setting goals that you think people can morally really easily hit. And the third... The third is an image about how we, how we morally learn things. It's the belief that you can only really see moral questions in light of the highest of ideals and that problems of injustice or problems of remedies or problems of restitution uh all, all have to be viewed in light of first understanding what the really best answers are okay so this
0: like you say this this when you when you talk about that sort of construct i just go straight to john Rawls in my head right like that's who's um Uh, sort of would personify that way of thinking about politics. There was one line... from your paper on ideal theory that caught me, because I think it it very much applied to me, where you said Rules is often a much more interesting and nuanced thinker read directly than um, he is in the eyes of people who disagree with him. I was I was wondering if you just had any thoughts on because I I for you know it's called the political philosophy podcast. I haven't touched Rules that much in spite of the fact that that's like usually the first thing that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you read on any political theory, guys. And I guess I just sort of don't like rules. Like, and I... I Not that I... There's nothing about, like, the two really? principles of justice or political liberalism that um I especially disagree with. He just does seem to represent a number of methodological steps that I think are not particularly useful in constructing good political theory um and so i think your little quip about so to me rules represents someone who wants a clean divide between you know the political and um ambitious life plans whereas i think any sensible political theory would see it as a spectrum he represents someone who's overtly anti-consequentialist whereas i'm quite influenced by that and so on and so forth right um And I think I almost certainly fall into that trap of reading a sort of cut-out version of Rawls, and that people who are Rawlsian seem to be much more um, nuanced, not just nuanced, but much more sort of multivariate and... um, the sort of paper mache version that I'm ascribing to them. So I was sort of wondering what your your overall read of him as a sort of uh, figure in this discipline is.
1: So I really enjoy reading and thinking about Rawls, and the fact that this this new project in particular, but really in different ways, everything that I've ever worked on, is one kind or another of reaction to the dominance of certain kinds of Rawlsian assumptions uh, doesn't really change that. Now, I don't always think that Rawlsians do Rawls any more favors than the critics of the cutout versions. I think that a lot of Rawls's ideas, when distilled down to slogans, take on a life of their own that becomes really powerful things for people to argue about, that don't do full service to how interesting uh, theory of justice and political liberalism and even law of peoples really are is he's not a simplistic thinker and his reasons for making methodological moves aren't simple or unthought out. However, he makes methodological moves that I ultimately disagree with and I worry sometimes that in trying to build up alternatives, I'm going to also resort to caricature and paper mache versions. And I'm tempted to partly because I do think the caricature versions and the paper mache versions get picked up by some of his followers. And so you'll get much more dogmatic methodological statements from people who just treat Rawls as sacred text than you would have gotten in Rawls's work on his own. But for the spirit of your question no I, I think that rawls is a really rich and interesting and important thinker and i think that there's good reason for us to still be working in his shadow even though by this general st- generational stage a lot of what that means is pushing against and trying to find new paths and i'm really trying to do work that proceeds from completely different methodological starting points uh, But it's it's important to me not to do it in a way that's dismissive.
0: Yeah, so it's, I mean, look, I'm not a professional political theorist at all, but what you're talking about there, it feels very like my relationship with Marx, that I'm not a Marxist, he makes methodological moves that I don't think are correct, if we can say that. But nonetheless, he's, he's very interesting and rich. And you wouldn't get that about the historical Marx from listening to either many of his detractors or many of his followers. Absolutely. You you know? Um, And so there is that... I forget who said it, but the quote that sociology is the ongoing and unholy communion with the ghost of Marx. Like, it does seem to me in some sense (laughs) correct that Marx has the place that he has. I've always been so much more dubious that that Rawls is the, you you know, that that it's like Rawls and his critics is what you learn in your introduction to political theory class. You
1: know, that... um, That's not what I teach in an introduction to political theory class. I... I, I did come up through school learning introduction to political philosophy in particular that way. Uh, I, I think that we're a ways beyond that now, but in a political theory context, we we get a comfort with the problem of great books and the thought that there really are authors and thinkers who make decisive contributions which then suffer from a kind of intellectual degeneration and get distilled into talking points, uh, but without that serving as a reason to dismiss or stop reading even the really wrong, great, interesting thinkers. And I think we're also great, interesting thinkers.
0: Who you also think is, is wrong about a number of like, yes. quite foundational oh, things.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Um, so let's get into why why he's he's wrong. So um in terms of Rawls's account, he he is an uh, uh, he is constructing an ideal theory in the sense that you've described of something that is sort of right prior to its contact with the world. Um, That seems intuitive on one level, but it's also just so... um so clearly in tension with so much else of what we talk about in political theory so as you discussed hume talks about justice which is Rawls' central idea as something that i'm probably butchering this a little but is necessarily arising out of real world circumstances if there was no scarcity there'd be no need for a conception of um individual there'd be no need for a conception of distributive justice but Rawls tries to find a way to take that sort of obvious sentence about the world and still square it with an ideal approach. Am I right in that, or did I get that wrong?
1: That, no, that, that's right. Um, Hume introduces a set of ideas about justice that Rawls uh, turns into an official statement of the circumstances of justice. The circumstances of justice are moderate scarcity in the material world, such that we're neither in the condition of superabundance nor in the condition of lifeboat emergency ethics. Hmm. Moderate scarcity uh, and moderate or limited altruism sometimes also expressed as mutual disinterest. So Hume says, if we were infinitely altruistic toward each other, then we would never have thought of the virtue of justice. Justice is how we organize our life, given that there's scarce things and different people claiming things for themselves over them. Ross takes that on board. He thinks that justice is that kind of virtue. However, he then says, let's try to construct or imagine what our conception of justice is, what we think justice consists of. And he says, in doing that, we will do ideal theory, such that we will compare a whole bunch of different theories under the assumption that the theory we come up with would be universally complied with. Now that's, at best, a tightrope to walk. And Jerry Cohen famously pushes really hard to try to knock Rawls off that tightrope and says... If we're imagining that people would do the thing that the theory says they should do, then why should we introduce all this stuff about limited altruism as a starting point? Why not imagine they should do they that they would do what they should do, full stop. I think that Rawls's tightrope doesn't fully work. I think that Cohen's right about that, though I think Cohen's pushing the wrong direction. Uh, but, But that is the hybrid thing that Rawls is trying to do. He's trying to construct a theory of justice that is still, in some sense, a theory of the virtue of justice as Hume defined it. But then when choosing among our theories of justice, we will completely wave away limitations like that people wouldn't all comply with it we'll try to get it right in our head, fix our idea by framing the problem as what is a fully just society which everyone would endorse and whose principles of justice everyone would live by.
0: Why, why is that wrong then? I mean, I guess the argument <laughs> would go, surely you need to have something to aim for, right?
1: Right. And, and there are local and piecemeal... Parts of morality or normativity, where I think the ideal theory move makes sense. I think there's reason to have been tempted toward it. Uh, When you think about the kinds of morality that we end up governing by law, the problem of, say, theft, we want to know who has what entitlements to things before we try to tackle the problem of theft. Because it's really hard to make sense of the idea of theft if you have first worked out the prior sense of ownership or entitlement. Uh, What I don't think that that licenses us to do is to try to build comprehensive theories of political justice that way. In particular, full compliance seems to me vulnerable to both cohen's kind of objection it tends to swallow everything else if you let it full compliance could be an assumption that you sometimes want to use as one idealizing tool but politics is a set of institutional solutions to a set of human problems and you can't idealize the problems away You can't do economics assuming scarcity away. There are other things you can do assuming scarcity away, but you can't do economics assuming scarcity away. Similarly, I don't think you can do normativity about politics. You can't do thinking about political life in, in terms of how do we want to organize it up. by assuming away either our disagreements with each other or our varying reluctance to go along with collective decision. Uh, They're related in a way that I think the ideal theory debate has tended to overlook, but that Rawls himself is not. Full compliance requires consensus because Rawls builds into what, what he means by ideal theory, the idea that we will all, endorse the same principles of justice and we'll all live by them and we will all know about each other that we all endorse and live by the same principles you couldn't have full compliance if we disagreed about justice because we would be complying with different things and Rawls wants to be able to build up a harmonious vision the well-ordered society which everyone is cooperatively engaged in the pursuit of and uh, abiding by the same set of principles I think that by the time you assume away disagreement and that kind of contention over what has to be done, you've assumed away too much of the problem of politics. You've left yourself without the problem really to solve
0: So let me just take a step back just for my own understanding. As I I said earlier, I use myself as the canary in the coal mine for, like, getting lost in this. There's there's at least two questions. I'm just going back to, like, my first year poll theory studying rules. When it comes to compliance, there's, you know, what would these abstract individuals in a theoretical, original position you know, what could command full compliance there? Then there's also just the real-world empirical question of could a society be constructed such that you get full agreement or even, like, overwhelming agreement to, like, the basic Rawlsian principles of justice, right? Right. So it seems like the first is plausible but the second isn't just at a basic level like sure in the original position people would agree to X, but there's a sort of empirical counter to rules which is just this is not something that's actually going to be actualizable it's not a realistic utopia you're not you're never going to get to the point where everyone agrees on the two principles
1: I don't want to attribute to Rawls the thought that you could. Um,
0: It's just a waypoint. It's just a a utopian vision to strive towards. It's
1: a marker to hold against our existing... To organize our thinking, to allow us to rightly frame the, the idea in our heads of what justice is that we're aiming for. The role of the thought experiment, the role of the original position, uh, this is all very funny. This is me more or less defending Rawls uh, when that's really not what my work is like. Uh, But the role of the original position and the thought experiment is to allow us as real people, us eventually, he'll say, as citizens of a democracy like ours, to be able to frame an idea of justice that allows us to pursue it in the world. It's not to model the world. And so the the problem with the original position isn't, can't be, if we're being fair to Rawls, that, well, people aren't like that. People don't have that suitable level of, of disinterest, of abstraction from their personal equipment. Uh, the kinds of criticisms that, say, Michael Sandel has made of brawls for a long time are, in my view, profoundly misguided and unfair. The way that the original position is used, even in theory of justice, to say nothing of in political liberalism simply isn't that it's a scale working model of the world. It's meant to be a way to let us, people like us, real people, learn about what justice demands. I don't think it does that. But the reason why it does that isn't that it's unrealistic. But
0: – and so I guess this gets sort of onto the point, though, is if you've produced – if the if the purpose is to create um, a yardstick with which we can measure existing institutions and say – you know, we found what justice looks like through this thought experiment. Now let's see, you know, does the contemporary United States meet that conception of justice? Then if that if the realization of that conception of justice stipulate it's impossible, then is that then then isn't that sort of an argument against it, even if Rawls isn't overtly claiming that it is realizable? If we're, if we're measuring to something that's not congruent with the way human beings actually participate politically.
1: Good. Um, so there's, there's at least a possible difference between not congruent and not realisable. Okay. Not realisable could just mean so ambitious that it's always at the horizon. To the ideal theorist, that's not a criticism.
0: That's, that's the, just the way. Right.
1: That's the point. That's just a way of keeping your eyes elevated so that you're moving toward progress rather than letting your eyes fall down so that you start moving in the wrong direction. Um, Whereas not no, congruent. Um, Sorry, you can mean, do it. It means, means that you're engaged in the wrong enterprise somehow. Yes.
0: Well, well, I mean, here would be my only point, is it seems to me like you know, philosophers are always circling around this question of sort of what does it mean to be a human being, right? Um, and you could construct an argument, you know, whether or not the argument succeeds, just stipulate that the argument succeeds, um, that having moral disagreements and having differing interpretations of both um, the right and the good is actually just sort of foundational to what it is to be human, and hence having not just political dif- political differences on both shallow and deep questions is sort of a necessary part of the human experience. And if that were true, then yes, then the 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 Rawlsian yardstick would be not a good yardstick in a more fundamental sense, merely than like it would cost a lot of money or we wouldn't get political cooperation right. for
1: it. That's right. And 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 that's, that's a criticism that people from a variety of intellectual directions have made of Rawls and Rawlsian contract theory for a long time. Uh, people who were influenced by Hannah Arendt were making that criticism all along in the 1970s, became very prominent in the 1990s when Jeremy Waldron, who really worked within the same intellectual tradition, the same analytic liberal democratic theory as Rawls, well, said we need to treat as just as fundamental as the circumstance of justice, the circumstance of politics, which include our disagreement about justice. And that's going to make It's a central problem for our political life. How do we organize our disagreements? How do we get decisions, given that none of us has unique epistemic access to the truth? And then over the course of the 2000s, it became a a big idea for those who started to identify as realists in political theory, uh, often under the influence of either Bernard Williams or Raymond Goyce or both.
0: So what's your assessment of that critique? Does that, does that line of argument succeed or succeed partially, according to you? Yes.
1: Uh, I, I still think that you might sometimes want consensus as a local, temporary, methodological step. My view is that lots of kinds of idealization can be helpful. Problems of normativity are always problems of Partly trying to imagine a world that is different from the immediately surrounding world because you have some image of better. And in order to imagine better, you need some way to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, some way to say, you know, even though I'm stuck here in the world, I have some ability to imagine and portray to you something that's better and some way to explain what would make it better. I think that idealizations kind of lowercase i, idealizations, and very much plural idealizations, are tools to that end. But there are always going to be one idealization or another that you need to then be able to put down again. That I distinguish from capital I ideal theory that says the big one of full compliance and the related one of consensus are absolute requirements for us to be properly thinking normatively at all. And until we do them, we can't do anything else. I think that idealizations can be very much in the business of imagining remedies for the worst evils. We find ourselves in the muck of the world. We find ourselves in a world that has slavery and torture and we're able to idealize enough to say, well, what does the world look like if powerful political actors stop having torture as one of the instruments available to them? That's a counterfactual. It's an idealization. Uh, but it doesn't require that we be able to imagine either that powerful people cease to act like powerful people or that they become morally better than they are or Consensus, consensus can be one of those tools, but I don't think it's the sine qua on any more than full compliance is the sine qua on. I don't think you need to use those tools before we do normative work, and I don't think they're privileged over other idealizations.
0: Right, right. And there's nothing... But there's nothing fundamentally... Because in a sense, there's like... Um, you know, is is an idealization, you know, what, what are we doing with that? And you can have an, an ideal theory that uh, that is, a, in some way, the sort of correct yardstick. Uh, you, you could have a much softer approach, right, which is just that it's a discursive tool, you know? Yes. But, like, uh, by analogy, I can... You know, it's a discursive tool to use emotion, right? Like, I can tell you about how I feel in a particular situation. And I can describe a a, a world to you in the same way I could describe my inner mental landscape to you. I could describe, like you say, a world without torture. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's quite different to the ideal theory you're talking about, right? That's right. Okay, so that's the overall political approach that you're rejecting. But presumably in your upcoming work justice in babylon you're doing more than just rejecting that theory what do you argue should take its place Uh,
1: so we've we've talked a lot about things that i did in a paper called there's no such thing as ideal theory and that's that's a paper that's much more directed against rawlsians and rawlsianism than most of my work is uh that's part of a bigger project that really isn't about Rawls. And I said earlier on that I think there's good reason for us to be operating in Rawls as shadow, even when we're trying to do something else. But ultimately, I'm trying to do something else. My next book is going to be called Justice in Babylon. It's about how to do political normativity in general when we start from the assumption that our political life doesn't orient toward justice, that political history doesn't naturally drift in the direction of justice, and that we're surrounded by people with whom we disagree and surrounded by people with whom we don't have either moral or ancestral commonality. Politics is the set of solutions that we try to devise to problems about living in that world with people with whom we disagree, When we are subject to common power that isn't going to be entirely justified, it's partly going to be a book about these two-level problems. How do I live with myself as a moral actor, knowing that the political world isn't going to be a morally entirely legitimate space? But it's also just about trying to think about what it means for us to aspire to justice, when we give up on these kinds of radical idealizations about what justice demands. And I, I hope to be able to say something about what starting from injustice can get us and how far it is that we can then really try to think about living together less unjustly, knowing that there aren't guarantees, knowing that it's always just temporary, knowing that other people are going to disagree with us. But still, meaningfully aspiring to make things less unjust rather than more. When's um when's the book out? You not you know. Uh, we it's it's much too early for that thought. There are five or six articles that I've written around the project uh, that I'm now in the process of trying to tear up in order not to just drop them in as chapters to a book draft to try to really build an integrated book from scratch. The five or six articles mean that I feel pretty confident in the argument. And I know what I'm saying, but there isn't yet a book draft. Until there's a book draft, anyone who tells you that they know when the book is coming out is probably not telling the truth.
0: (laughs) Where did the, I mean, I can imagine, but where did the title come from, Justice in Babylon?
1: In the book of Jeremiah, God tells the prophet Jeremiah to tell the Jews who are held in captivity that they should seek the peace of the city. They should plant gardens, they should build houses, they should have children, they should live well. And more than just living well, they should seek the peace of the city, whether I have caused you to be taken captive, because in the peace thereof you will find your peace. Augustine then turns that into a really important organizing metaphor for what it's like to be a Christian in the world. Like the Jew is in exile from Israel and Babylon, the Christian is in exile from heaven while they're on earth. Augustine believes in predestination. He believes that you're already one of the saved. Your true home is the city of God. But you're stuck here on earth. What do you do while you're stuck here on earth? You don't withdraw into monasteries. You don't go try to find communities of only Christians to live amongst, but you also don't morally dress up Rome the way that a lot of Christians wanted to morally dress up Rome as being the manifestation of God's will in the world. You accept that political life is fallen. You accept that you're living with people who are not your friends. The Babylonians are not the friends of the Jews, and the damned on earth are not the friends of the saved on earth. But you're living in shared circumstances with them. And there are real normatively important common interests that arise with these non-friends, even though you're all subject to violence and power. And I think there's something really valuable in that double-mindedness, both that Jeremiah has for the Jews and that Augustine has for the Christians, to say... You have a really strong reason to normatively make the best of these circumstances, not to withdraw from them, not to ignore them. But also, don't morally dress them up to be better than they are. Don't idealize them. Don't imagine that your enslavers are your friends or your brothers. Don't imagine that the damned are really your deep moral allies or deeply going to morally agree with you about things. Uh, Accept politics for what it is and try to make the best of it
0: i mean we just talked about this sort of narrative of um reinflating christianity is there sort of an there's that element of both the fallenness of the world and the fallenness of mankind um is that something we could do with more of in our politics, and a perhaps um, translated into secularism version of that. Because, like, I I can't think of obvious. Yeah, I'll do. You no, know, I'll just ask that question. Is that is that do, do we need a more robust secular version of those those
1: concepts? Yes, that's actually the the part of one chapter that I'm working on right now this week is talking explicitly about what fallenness can mean for us when we don't have an image of what it is that we've fallen from that we share with Augustine, Uh, what it is to think about just our limitedness, our limited, not just mutual altruism as in human roles, but our limited moral knowledge, our sometimes bad moral motivation, the fact that we're surrounded by people who have sometimes bad moral motivation what it is to think about the human condition as flawed in those ways. That needs to be built into our vision of what politics is like, both the problems that politics are there to solve, but also the limits of what the solutions are like. And I do think that there's a lot of our moral and political philosophy that tries to do without it. It tries to secularize some parts of the Christian tradition, but without properly, I think, keeping the fallenness part And I think there are ways in which we can meaningfully build a secular vision of what it's like to live in a fallen world that, nonetheless, we want to make the best of.
0: I'm always impressed when I look at the history of political thought, how the really great traditions, the really big ones, the really powerful ones, have at their heart particular conceptions of the person and what it means to be a human being. So, like, on the other side, there's a sort of style of liberalism I've always very much liked, running from, like, John Stuart Mill to figures like Hobson and Hobhouse, and even I've argued someone like Keynes can be understood in this light, where at the heart of this, there's the idea of the improvability of mankind developing the drawing out of the potential of the individual, which isn't the same thing as um the the fallen image but it, it does relate to it in a sense that you you are looking at the the imperfection of of mankind and thinking about its improvability if and in some forms that verges into perfectibility, and in some forms it doesn't and then when i look at a lot of contemporary progressivism i see a lot that i like i identify you know i support Social justice movements very strongly, I support you know the demands for greater economic equality more strongly, but it does seem to be lacking that animating feature of a vision of both what is wrong with and what is possible uh, for the human being or or when it does have a vision of mankind at its center, it tends to be fairly impoverished and emaciated as as merely a victim of oppression or, um, to take a sort of uh, a libertarian case, merely a want-fulfiller and maximizer. and that, I don't know how you get it back in, but that, that that vision of the human soul is sort of lacking in a lot of the political ideologies today. That's a bit of a long thought.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about the comparison with the meliorability and perfectibility strain, because that's, really deeply not the strain of liberalism that I'm aligned with. But language like mitigating is much more my vocabulary than language like perfecting. Uh, that's partly this focus on injustice first and on evils first. Uh, I, I think there's something about the, the radical meliorists, the perfectibility theorists, that tends to have their eye too far on the horizon, and tends to ignore the costs of what they do in the here and now. Tends to want to override people as they are. Uh, but, but I take your point that there's there's a psychological richness to the image of humanity there uh, that I would want to partake of and to to treat us as having moral characters. The moral characters are flawed, and I don't think that they're going to get unflawed. And I want to build a politics that treats seriously that the officials and rulers are flawed, not only those over whom they rule. So I'm not going to build up a politic that says, and it is the task of the officials and the rulers to uh, fix the people over whom they rule when they are not outside the human condition either. Uh, but, but by contrast with the ordinary welfareist utilitarianism, yes, I, I, I'd want to share with someone like Mill a desire to give a richer moral psychology, a richer sense of what it is our personalities are like. And of what we want in the world.
0: Well, yeah, to put simply, if you're going to be a utilitarian, it's better to be Mill than Bentham, right? To have that that to, to, to have an
1: animating vision of the human being at the heart of what you do. It's better to have an animating vision. Um whether the, whether it's better to be that kind of utilitarian is complicated, but <laughs> that, that's 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 another half hour.
0: Yes, no, <laughs> no.
1: Um,
0: so you to summarise then you would want an animating and psychologically rich vision of the the um human being at the heart, but you would want to stress not just as Mill would the improvability, but also the potential for failure and the um need for protection of that individual.
1: Yes. Uh- in some ways, I would want to take seriously the stickiness and the durability of it uh, more than the plasticness and the reformability of it. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. Coming out next week will
0: be the second part of my conversation with Professor Levy, which will be more of a freeform discussion, as I mentioned. I may record one more interview and get that out to you. I'm still arranging the details with the guest, but it would be someone I would be really excited you know, I, I am. We, we get some good people on this show, right? Um, It would be someone I'm excited to get to, so I would get that out straight away if I made it work. And then after that, I'm going to be taking a pause on the interviews and doing some solo projects. The first will be an editorial series on Machiavelli, and specifically the role of Machiavelli in contemporary Republican Ideology, Republican, there, as in the tradition of viewing freedom as non domination, not the political party. I also am tempted to. I did some episodes on Brexit. I'm tempted to do some on the Democratic primary, although I'm not sure if I'm going to do those solo or with a guest. I have a couple of guests that I'd love to do them with. And I'm sort of wrangling with them to see if I can get them on. So anyway, that's like a little preview of what's coming up on the podcast. As always, if you want to support us, you can do so by making a donation on Patreon. You can just go to patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. So if the episode that you just listened to was as invigorating and stimulating as a cup of coffee, or conversely, as bitter and unpalatable as one, consider donating a couple of bucks, an equivalent amount, to help keep us doing that. Also, If you want to support us but aren't able to donate, or indeed if you do support us and wish to support us more, um, just sharing episodes really, really helps. So if you thought this episode was useful, um, just share it on your own social media. That really, really helps. All the growth that we've had so far has been organic. And as always, a really, really big thank you to anyone who sponsors the show or shares episodes or does both you're making it possible for this to happen, and I'm really, really grateful. Apart from that, uh, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week for part two.